I do hope that uh, you are excited about Christmas. Uh, we are. It's one of those uh, times of year when uh, people in our communities and our culture are uh, celebrating, are looking forward to certain things in their own lives and open to uh, the message and the story of Christmas. We want to we wanna take advantage of that. It's something that we always want to be sharing, but certainly this time of year, I hope that you're excited about that. And so I want to begin uh, just by praying into that, praying for our community, praying for us as a church, and then we'll get into uh, the word this morning. So join me uh, if you would. Uh, Lord God, we, we do hope, Lord, that this would be a season where, where your hope would reign in our community. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we do pray. We pray, Lord, that this would not just be a season of celebration for those around us, but that it would be a, a time of genuine uh, spiritual awakening, Lord, where they would, they would come to understand uh, the real uh, story of Christmas. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would... Um, not only be faithful in terms of inviting, but Lord, that it would be the joy of our hearts. Uh, Lord, that we would be genuinely excited about people uh, in our lives uh, coming to hear the truth. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open those doors. Uh, Lord, that you would place on our hearts those people that we might really want to pray into. And I, I pray, God, that, um, that as the message is shared, Lord, your spirit would be moving uh, in the communities around us, the Tri-Cities, Ridge Meadows area, beyond, we, we just pray, God, that in other faithful churches around the area, that more and more people would come to know you and believe. And I pray now, God, as we turn our attention uh, to your word, that, that we as a people, everyone here, Lord, we'd be shaped by it, Lord, especially as we turn our attention to this idea of kingship uh, in this season. I pray, Lord, that we would have on our minds and hearts those uh, thoughts, those questions about who is our king and, Lord, how we can follow you. So, so would you please speak to us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can tell, uh, we're starting a new series today. Uh, uh, I was up all night painting. No, I wasn't at all. Uh, we had a lot of people painting and crafting, and uh, the reason for it is we, we're excited for uh, this message and for this series called Where is the King? Uh, the title of the series is taken from uh, the, the Christmas story, in fact, kind of the last part of the Christmas story, and that's the part where the wise men come to worship and, and visit Jesus. Uh, I want to read to you where we get this. This is in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these wise men, or magi, uh, coming to see Jesus, this is a momentous event filled with connections to ancient prophecies, filled with uh, connections to uh, royal um, anointings and international relations at the time. It's a really, it's a really big deal, and we're going to look at it in detail on Christmas Eve. That's, that's the climax of our series uh, that's what we're going to be talking about, what it means that these wise men came from the east and, and came to visit uh, Jesus. Uh, and the lead up to it, we're going to be looking at uh, the question itself. Where is the king of the Jews? Where is the king? Because this is not the first time that that question had been asked. Uh, this is not the first time that, in fact, God's people had been asking that question. For thousands of years, in fact... The people of God have been, have been longing for a king, and so what we're going to do uh, in just a, in a few weeks, we've got three, four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, we're going to look at a few um, examples of an answer to that question, some of the kings, King Saul, King David, uh, but today we're going to go all the way back, and we're going to look at the very first time that question was asked at all. We're going to go back to the, the book of 1 Samuel, 
And you may not realize this, but there was a time when uh, there was no human king, no earthly king over the, the people of God. God was the king. And yet there came a moment when God's people requested, I think we're going to see it was more of a demanded, a king for themselves. And it's, it's a turning point in the history of God's people, our, our history. And uh, in this turning point, there's, a, there's some huge insights that we gain into our nature. If you're here this morning, you're a Christian our nature as the people of God, but also uh, into God's character. So that's what we're going to do. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and take from it four insights into what it means to be God's people, kind of how we tend to act and also how God tends to act towards us. So uh, I'm going to read through 1 Samuel chapter 8 a little bit at a time, uh, but first a little bit of context. We're jumping into a new book of the Bible. It's way at the beginning, right? Just uh, not much before uh, happens before it. And uh, in 1 Samuel, the first thing you want to know is who is Samuel. Samuel's a prophet. He's one of the big prophets in, in the Bible. But Samuel wasn't only a prophet, he was a judge. So a judge, if you want to think judge, think uh, spiritual, military, uh, political leader. Think like a, a priest and an army general and a prime minister all rolled into one. That's a judge. And God had brought judges to lead and care for his people. And Samuel was a pretty good judge. If you read through uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, you'll see how he, he cared for the people, he prayed for the people, uh, he judged them righteously, you know, settling legal disputes, he traveled around, he was a very good judge. They trusted him, they knew he was serving uh, on God's behalf, but by the end of chapter 7, there is a problem, uh, a couple of problems. Number one, Samuel's getting old, and number two, uh, his sons who he puts you know, in place to help him judge, they are good-for-nothing scoundrels, basically. So as we enter 1 Samuel chapter 8, we can see this is the problem that's on the minds and hearts of the people of God. They're seeing what's happening, and they're, they're worried. So here's uh, 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 1, just uh, three verses to start. God's word says this, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So we'll stop there. So if you can imagine the mindset of the people, you can see why they were a bit worried. You can imagine them talking to each other, saying, look, man, Samuel, he does not look good. Did you see him lately? He's, he's getting very, very old. And have you heard what's going on in Beersheba? His sons are... They're rotten. What are we going to do? Like, who's going to guide us? Who's going to govern us? So the elders got together and started talking. And they come up with a solution. They think it's a great solution. It, it, it seems to be something that's kind of been simmering in their minds for a while. They think it's a great idea. Samuel, we're going to see, uh, doesn't think it's such a great idea. Here's what they say. Here's verses 4 to 6. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Which is very kind. You are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. They don't mince any words. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, the first question we probably should be asking is, like, why exactly was Samuel displeased? Uh, some of the wording there in the Hebrew says that he, he considered what they had requested to be evil. Like it was wrong. He was not happy with what they had requested. And 
you kind of you wonder why. What's the big deal about uh, a king? I mean, we have a queen, and she's great, right? Everyone should have a good queen or a good king. What's, what's wrong with a king or a queen? Everyone else has one. What, what exactly is the issue here? Well, you might think it's that they just should never ask for a king. They have, they have God. God is their king, and that's partly true. But actually, uh, if you look back in Deuteronomy 17, you'll see that God had made an allowance for the, his people to, at a certain point, ask for a king. Here it is, uh, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15. Uh, this is Moses, uh, God speaking to Moses, says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So it seems pretty clear there that you, God said, you, you can do this, and then he gives a bunch of parameters on who, you know, what a good king would look like. So asking for a king wasn't the problem. The problem was the motivation behind their request. See, Samuel senses that really what they're asking for is a substitute for God. Basically, what they're saying is, look, look, we've, we've, for a long time now, we've had God who's leading us, but we, I mean, we can't ever see him. We can't ever really talk to him. What we would really like is just a, a leader that we can, that we can see, that we can, that we can hold accountable. We can just, like a real person that we can look at and and that's the kind of thing we want. All the other nations have a king like that. We, we want that as well. Here we're going to see the first insight into our nature as, as a people. Insight number one, we tend to focus on material instead of spiritual problems. Do you notice that in, in their request? See, the people are, are nervous. They're worried for a lot of material, practical, kind of immediate reasons. Right? Think about what they would be talking about. What, what's going to happen if we have to go to war? Right? Samuel's old. There's no one to actually like, lead us out there. What happens if there's a problem that we can't decide? How are we going to deal with that? They become very, very worried about their security as a nation, their future as a nation. Now, I think we have to agree that those are not small things. Those are not bad things to be thinking about. Right? Those are real issues that we... You know, when it's election time, when we're deciding on leadership, we think about those things. Who's going to lead us well? Who's going to be there to, to care for us, to guide us, govern us? It's not that they weren't important things. It's just that they weren't the most important things. See, the greatest threats to God's people, to any people, really, are, are always spiritual threats, spiritual issues, things like idolatry, things like indwelling sin, things like disobedience to God's word. Those are the, those are the things that bring real trouble to the people of God, to, to people all over the world, right? It's when we are out of step with where God is leading, that's, that's when we get lasting and dire consequences in our lives, in the immediate and certainly in, in the future. Plus, if you think about it, God, I mean, God, hasn't God shown them that he's going to care for them, right? They, they were going to the promised land. They, they forsook him there. They didn't trust him. And he sent them wandering. And the whole time, they needed food. Food rained from the sky. They needed water. Water came from a rock. They needed meat. Quail fluttered from somewhere. They, he took care of them. He, he's shown them that he can provide for them materially and practically. But this looming leadership uncertainty really got people worried. Really got people afraid. And I don't think this tendency has gone away. 
If you think about how we assess our problems in life, don't, don't we tend to focus on those things, like those material, immediate problems? If you think about what fills like your heart and your mind and your prayers, doesn't it tend to be those things that are right in front of us? Man, this is, Lord, if there's one thing that I need taken care of right now, it's, it's this. And it's usually something external. See, let me ask you this. Um, if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what's, what's the, the biggest threat to my, to my hope, to my comfort, to my security in life? How do you think he would answer? Do you think he'd start talking about the stuff that we don't have? Or, or the, the practical problems of our life? Do you, do you think he'd talk about anything materially in our lives and say that's, that's the biggest thing? Or would he talk about our spiritual health? Don't you think he'd probably point to those areas where we're, we're out of step with the Lord and say, look, this, this is the thing. That if you, if you don't deal with this, there's going to be dire consequences in, in your future. See, those are the real threats to our security and happiness because sin, sin always brings us to a point of, of disappointment, of heartache, of brokenness in, in the immediate and, and in the eternal. So to deal with the biggest issues of our life, we need to see things clearly. And just to give you a, a bit of a, a picture of this, it's like the difference between, uh, between painting over rust on a car and cutting it out. Right? I had a friend who worked in an auto body shop. Whenever we'd walk by, he'd see rust. He'd say, you've got to cut that out. Like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you can't, can't you sand it? No, you can't sand it. He said, don't sand. You can't sand rust. It's never going to work. He said, you've got you to cut it out. You've got to patch it properly and paint it. Then it'll be fine. Because he'd seen what would happen when people would try to just deal with it superficially. It would always bubble up. The paint would crack. It would come back. He's, that, that's, those are the real issues in our lives. The deep-seated issues of sin and disobedience, spiritual issues. Those are the things that when those are healed by the grace of God, then there is real security in our lives. But the, the Israelites didn't see that, right? They weren't concerned about their level of trusting God. They were mostly concerned with the practical, immediate things. And because they didn't assess the problem correctly, they, that then led them to ask for the wrong solution. So here's the second insight. Instead of looking to God for help, we tend to tell him what we think we need. Amen? No one wants to amen that, but I think we probably should. So this is very clearly what the Israelites were doing, right? You can imagine them. They're, they had counsel. They talked together. They said, okay, what do we need? What's going on? They came to Samuel, not asking any questions. They were saying, Samuel, look, we know what the problem is. We know what we need. We need you to go to God. Here is what we need. We've got a list. It's got one point, a king. That, that would help us. If we do that, everything would be great. The thing is, we pray like this too. Right, with our blinders on, just saying, we, we got this figured out. And, and we come to God, not that often asking him for real input, but saying, look, God, this is, this is what I need. Here's just an example of the kinds of prayers we pray. And, and notice, we don't say it outright. We kind of, we kind of frame it with a, a, a supposed sense of trusting and the sovereignty of God. But I think this is maybe how we pray. So something like this. <clears throat> God, you know that I have been struggling as the associate assistant manager at my job. You know, Lord, that it has been a long time and a lot of promotions I haven't succeeded in. Three times now, Lord, I've been praying to you. I have not gotten out of this position. You know, Lord, the difficulty this has created in my marriage. You know, especially 
that my mother-in-law, who said I would never amount to anything, is going to gloat this Christmas season. Lord, you know that I'm up for another management position. And God, you are in charge, God. You are good and you are powerful. I just want to remind you, Lord, of how wonderful it would be for me to no longer be associate assistant manager. Please, Lord, deliver me from this associate assistant manager purgatory, even though I know that's not a real thing theologically, but it feels like that. (laughs) Amen. Right? Isn't that sometimes how we pray? Lord, we know you're in charge, Lord, whatever you want, but God, this, man, this thing, this, if this happened, then all would be well. The sentiment here, and that kind of praying, I think it come down to the word if. Lord, if, if you really love me, if you care about me, God, if you are concerned for my family, then you will, and will fill in the blank. See, the real issue there is one of trust. Right? You see, isn't that what the people are saying? God, if, look, if you really cared for us, if you were concerned for the future of your people, then you would give us a king. That's the obvious thing. If you don't do that, Lord, then we're, I mean, they didn't ever say that, but the implication is we're, we're not sure that you really care for us. You'll notice that's why they're not really asking for a king, right? They, they're demanding it. They say to Samuel, appoint for us a king. There's no real question in their mind that this is the right thing that they should do. I think the word that we could use to describe what they're looking for is a guarantee. Right? They're looking for some guarantees. That God's love is real, that, God's, that God actually cares for them, because guarantees always give us a sense of security. Just think about what a legal contract means. Right? It's a guarantee. You might say you trust someone, but then when you go into business with them, what do you want? You want a contract. Right? You want them to sign on the line to force them to do the thing that they say they will do and that you say you generally trust them, but you but really, really want is a guarantee. Guarantees, for the most part, say, I, I don't actually really trust you that much. I want to give you a story of, of real trust without a guarantee from an unlikely source. Uh, the unlikely source is a man that you might know. His name is Bruce Allen. You know Bruce Allen? He's a local Vancouverite. Uh, he's a manager of Brian Adams, uh, Michael Buble, Jan Arden. He's been in the business for a long time. Interesting thing about Bruce, Bruce Allen is that he does not have any contracts with the talent that he represents. It's all, he does it all in a handshake. He basically says, look, if you're ever not happy with my services, uh, then you, you can walk away. It's all, it's all built on trust. And he has really built up a sense of, of trust. So here's the story that he tells to try to help you understand how this works. Because anyone in any business world would say, that doesn't seem like a good idea. To have multi-million dollar deals and no contracts seems like it could be a recipe for disaster. But here's the story that I've heard him tell. The thing about Bruce Allen is uh, he is at every show that Brian Adams uh, does. So Brian Adams does about 10, 15 shows a month. He's at every one. Always has been. Uh, except there was one time when uh, Brian Adams was playing in Vancouver, Michael Buble was in Japan, and so the, the schedules just didn't work out. And he was, for the first time, not going to be there when Brian Adams played a show. And someone asked Brian Adams about it, kind of, you know, ribbing him a bit and saying, oh, like, what do you think of that? Bruce Allen's not coming. And Brian Adams jokingly said, well, I guess we know who's, you know, the most important uh, client that he has, <laughs> kind of joking. So this got back to Bruce Allen. So it's the day before Brian Adams' show, Michael Buble finishes, uh, so Bruce Allen gets on a red-eye flight. The next day when uh, Brian Adams is finished his sound check, he walks into his, uh, you know, his dressing room and there's Bruce Allen sitting on the couch. And he stops and he says, I thought you weren't going to be here. And Bruce Allen says, where else would I be? 
And then, this is not made up, they both cry. <laughs> they both cry. Why? Because it's been decades. And that's the kind of the bond that they have. Now listen, here's, here's my point. If, no disrespect to Bruce, if Bruce Allen can give people a reason to trust him and depend on him, then do we not have even greater reason in God himself? That we should say amen there. Yes. Yes. We, we, don't, we should not need the guarantees that tend to come to our mind and heart, the immediate guarantees. We've been shown in amazing ways the depth of God's love for us, his care for us. We're celebrating this Christmas season that the greatest evidence that God truly loves us and is working out everything in history for our good in the coming of Jesus. We don't need to go to God and tell him what we think we need. What we need to do is we need to trust him. Now, all of this is true about who God is and our nature. The interesting thing in our story, though, is that though it's very clear that the people should have been trusting God more, God's reaction is just is very puzzling. Okay, so let's look at the next section. Here's 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7 to 9. So they just requested a king. Samuel went and prayed to God. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel thinks this is a bad idea. God is saying, look, this is them rejecting you and rejecting me. So why in the world does God say, obey their voice? Twice he says it. He says, go and do what they're asking. Here's the third insight. This time it's about the nature of God. Here's what we see. God will often instruct and or judge us by giving us exactly what we want. That's what's going on here. Let me explain those two things. In, in, instructing. This is a principle that we see uh, in parenting, right? I think this is a bit of an urban myth, but probably some parents did this, um, right? The story goes like this. There's a teenager who's caught smoking, or we might update it and say vaping, smoking, vaping. And what do the parents do? They say, okay, you want to you wanna smoke here. You have to smoke this whole pack of cigarettes right now. And then they make them smoke and they feel horrible. They're violently ill. And they hopefully learn, look, what you thought was so great is not great. It's not good for you. They hopefully learn their lesson. Very often, God treats us this way. God says to us, you, you think you know what will make you happy? Okay, go for it. You want to turn away from me? You want to stop living according to the biblical moral code? Stop um, worshiping me? You want to go worship other things? Live like the world? Go for it. See, see how great your happiness is. There's other times where we have it locked in our mind and heart. We Lord, I just need this. I need a spouse. God, I just need someone to to love me and to be happy. If I just had that, I'll be happy. And God says, fine, if that's what you think you need. Don't ask too many questions. Don't worry about what they believe, right? Just worry about how you feel walking on the beach, the sunset, with no stresses in the world. If you feel fantastic, they must be the one. Go for it. See, the truth of the matter is that very often God gives us what we think we need just to reveal to us the fact that And anything apart from the Lord is not going to truly satisfy us. And very often we don't don't learn that until we get everything that we think we need and it falls apart and we come back to the Lord, hopefully. Hopefully that's that's what he wants for us. That's why he gives it to us. But there's another element 
of this, and that is judgment. Sometimes God gives us over to our sinful desires as a form of passive judgment, and we see this in the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 28. Uh, he, it says there, and since they, uh, this is speaking about human beings in their sin, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Right? This is human beings saying, I don't want you, Lord, I want to go my own way. And God says, fine, you go. You go and do what your heart desires. And then it continues. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. It goes on and on. And then verse 32 says this. Though they know God's righteous degree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What you see there is one of the scariest things in the Bible. That is someone who is steeped in sin and yet feels no twinge of conscience. Someone who just feels absolutely fine. Right? I know this supposedly is going to bring me to the point of death, of God's wrath, but I, I don't really care. In fact, I don't even feel bad about it. See, God is very often giving us what we think we need to, to teach us a lesson or to show the truth that apart from him, there is no genuine hope. No genuine joy. And in fact, if you look in the text, God is, God is saying, this is not the first time I've dealt with this. Look at verse 8. He says, of, the, of his people, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Saying to Samuel, look, remember, I've, I've seen how these people have reacted before. They were in slavery in Egypt. I saved them. And, and within days, they were complaining. And then we got, you know, to the promised land. They didn't trust me, didn't go there. They were forsaking me for other gods when I'm giving them the, the law. I know how this goes. The sinful human heart is fickle. And so God's response is to both instruct and to judge. And to that end, he says to Samuel, okay, okay go and give them what they want, but make sure you warn them about how this is going to go. Okay, and so here's what Samuel says to then the people. This is starting in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. And to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day... You will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. He really lays it on thick. Right? There's no, there's no mistaking the warning that is coming. And so here's the fourth insight that we see. We, the people there, and, and us today, we tend to be deaf to true wisdom. See, if you notice in this warning, Samuel is not unveiling some, like, mystery about having a king. It's, it's not some 
hidden truth that the people wouldn't have realized. This is very practical wisdom. He's not even describing a bad king. This isn't an evil king. This is just any king who's going to rule over you. These are the things that it means. If, if you have a king who's ruling over you, he's going to take. That's the word we see six times. Take your sons. Take your daughters. Take the best of your fields. Take your grain. Take your servants. Take your flocks. Take, take. And the irony here is that the whole reason that people are asking for a king is because they wanted security. Right? They wanted a better quality of life. What he's saying is that this very thing that you're asking for, you're actually going to have to give up a lot to get it. There's, there's warning, that there's wisdom in the warning here. And yet, the people don't hear it. I mean, he makes it, let me look at verse 18 again. Look at the severity of the consequence, where this is leading. He's trying to show them, because they're at the beginning of the road. He's saying, look at the far end. Here's, here's what's going to happen. Verse 18, and in that day, you will cry out because of your king. Whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You would think the people would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Guys, maybe we should talk about this. Right? Look at all the things. Have we thought about all of this? That's not what they say. Right? Here, here's, here's what they say. They, they turned a blind eye and a deaf ear. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. You can see there that the uh, conviction, the hardness of heart has increased in the people. At the beginning, was kind of a request, a point for us a king. Now, now they say no, but there shall be a king over us. It's very clear that they are consumed with the idea that for them to be secure as a nation, what they need is, is not God himself, but what God can give them. Right? They're fixated on this idea of having an earthly king, that that would be the answer to their problems. Now look, there's, there are a lot of applications in this text I think you can tell as we read through it already, there's, there's a dynamic there that makes it very clear. Man, this, this feels like us a lot of the time. But I want to highlight two. Two points of application for, for us today, I think back then as well, but certainly for us today. Here's the first point of application. We should stop complaining when God says no. See, in light of this passage, what has become very clear is that we are not as wise as we think we are. And that very often we are asking for something that is going to bring us misery instead of joy. And that sometimes God gives us that thing that we're asking for to teach us a lesson. Considering all of those things, we should look at a no answer from God differently, don't you think? Should we not be better able to hear a, a no or, or experience a closed door and think, man, maybe God has just saved me from something. I mean, just think for a moment of, if you look back, how many times has it been something that you've been praying about, you've been hoping for, and when it happened, man, you're, it didn't work out well. It didn't work out like you thought. In fact, worse things happened because of it, or vice versa. Has it been something that you're really hoping and you didn't get it, and later on, you're like, oh man, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I didn't marry that person. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't get that, that job. 
I'm so glad whatever it is. One story from our lives for Don and I, there was a season where we had left um, Willingdon Church. That's first ministry context where I got saved at Willingdon. Uh, Don and I were really in prayer, figuring out where God was calling us next. Uh, through a season of prayer and discernment, we, we figured, okay, Westside Church, downtown Vancouver, was, was where God was leading us. Their elders were praying. We were praying. We agreed. It was going to be family ministry director. About two weeks after we came to that decision, I got an email from a, from a job offer, from a job application I had made to a church uh, down in the States. This was a church that we were really excited about working at and we were hoping for. It was like six months earlier, totally forgotten about it. Two weeks after that decision, they emailed me basically giving me a job offer for the same kind of thing. And I remember Don and I saying, man, what, God, why didn't you tell us that earlier? Like maybe, oh, maybe that's where we're supposed to be and we were going back and forth about it and man, that was what we were really hoping for for a season of time. In the end, we decided, look, if God had wanted us there, then he would have told us about it earlier. And so we, we just settled on where we were and, and just sort of forgot about it, declined the offer. Uh, about a year and a half later, that, that ministry totally collapsed. And we were so thankful that we were, that we were not going through the hardship of being part of a ministry that was collapsing in and of itself, not in another country, move, having moved our whole family. We were so so thankful that God did not give us what we wanted. Look, we as a people should come to the understanding that a, a no answer from God is never a bad thing. Very often he is showing us mercy, saving us from ourselves. It, it's hard, I know, right? You get this thing, you're excited, the door's closed, you're like, oh, you're banging on it, you got the jackhammer, Lord, why isn't it open? It's just stuck, Lord, why? But very often it's God saying, man, I remember that I'm God and I can see everything in your future and I really love you? We should stop complaining when God says no. That's the first thing. Second point of application is this. We should actually trust the word of God. Do you see the, do you see the key sort of hinge point in the text? Look, look again at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Now just think about that. This, this was a voice of God's prophet. This was a, a voice that they had, had been ruling over them, governing them, judging them for decades. They knew this voice. They knew that Samuel spoke on behalf of God. And they knew all that God had done for them. And yet they refused to listen. Right? They said, look, we know what's best. We, we know what would be perfect for us as a nation. It would be to have a king. We don't want to be set apart anymore. We don't want to be different. All the other nations laugh at us, right? And so God gives them over to their misguided desires. Let me ask you this. What, what do you think would happen if we simply trusted and obeyed the voice of God in our lives? I mean, what do you think would happen if as we're reading the word, as we're in prayer, as we have promptings from the spirit of God, if we didn't question, if we didn't deliberate, for days and weeks and months, if we simply said, Lord, I'm going to do what you call me to do. Not, not perfectly, right? I'm not saying we got to be Jesus, but wholeheartedly, intentionally. Do you think that we would regret it? You know, you don't find many stories in the Bible of people who are committed to the word of God and yet come to regret it. Now, don't get me wrong. They often die, okay? Just to be clear. 
But there's a big difference between death and regret. Right? There's a big difference between, between living a life of conviction and receiving the blessing of God eternally and, and being in the regret of sin. In fact, I would say if, if the worst thing you can think of is dying, then you don't really understand who you are as a creation of God. Right? This life, this 70, 80, 90 years, this is, this is but a shadow of the life to come, of the, of the glories of heaven. And the only way that we can gain entrance, that we can have the hope of heaven, is if, in fact, the regret in our life has been wiped clean. And that, that happens through Christ, through what God has already done for us. See, when we have that in our minds, when, when as we enter the Christmas season and there's genuine joy in our hearts, we get another opportunity to remember and rejoice and worship our King Jesus, the true King who came not just to lead us, not just to govern us, but to actually die for us. When that fills our minds and our hearts, the real question is, well, then how do we live? We know that we don't have to obey God perfectly. If you know the gospel, you know that's not what this call is. It's not, it's not perfect obedience that's required of us. Jesus did that for us. He came, he did it, and then he, he died to show us the grace of God, to see us in the righteousness of Christ. So then the question is, okay, then, then what do, how do we live? How do we genuinely live and trust God in a way that when the practical things come forward, like when our security is shaken, when it's money issues, relationship issues, how do we actually walk forward not latching on to those immediate things that are in front of us and then going to God in prayer and saying, God, these are the things I need. How do we instead say, Lord, I know that you've got me. Lord, there are things that I I think I need, Lord. I need your help to know how to respond best. But God, my security has not been shaken. Lord, I do trust in you. See, another way to answer this or ask this question, right, this whole idea is, is really, who is our king? Is it our own, our own wisdom, our own mindset, the things around us, the things that God gives us, or is it God himself? See, the people, it's, again, it's not that they should never have asked for a king. What they should have avoided was being consumed by this this fear and uncertainty at the, at the prospect of not having those things they think they needed, of forgetting what they already had by virtue of simply being God's people. So, as I said, in the next few weeks, we're going to look at what happens. Right? God says, okay, go, get a king. We're going to see King Saul. i got to tell you, the people are really excited about King Saul. Right? He's, I mean, I think everything's going to go really, really well, uh, except that we... You know, Samuel is a prophet for reasons, so the things he speaks tend to come true. It's not, it's not going to turn out that way. But even in that, we're going to see that God has not abandoned his people. He's continuing to teach and instruct them and really to point them forward to the, to the coming king. So let me pray for us and pray for God's wisdom in our lives, that we would trust, trust him fully. Lord, I do pray that. I do pray, God, that you would help us as we... As we walk through life, Lord, there's so many practical, immediate concerns, uh, Lord, from, from cars breaking down to, to jobs being lost. Lord, these are real things that, Lord, are real weights on our hearts. And Lord, it, these are not trivial. Jesus, it's not that you look at these things and, and think they're no big deal. But God, I, Lord Jesus, I pray you'd help us not to see those things as the biggest issues of our life. Lord, thankfully, you, you, have, you have already brought hope into the biggest issues of our lives. 
You've brought answers to the biggest questions of our life. And I pray, Lord, that that is where our security would, would be rooted. Lord, in, in the truth, Jesus, that you came not just to rule and reign over us, but, but to sacrifice yourself for us. And I pray as we consider all the, the different uh, challenges of our lives, that that, that, that uh, deep hope would, uh, would permeate the rest of our, our questions, the rest of our concerns. And I pray you'd help us as a people, Lord, not to question you when the answer is no, and to genuinely trust you for goodness in our lives. I pray again for this Christmas season, Lord, the season of Advent. May we look forward to your second coming, Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.